In this series on the person and character of God, several times I have mentioned the fact or made the statement that your knowledge of God is the key to your life. Our understanding of God is the key to our lives. Right living begins by thinking right about what God is like. Now in saying that, I don't mean to imply or to state that the Christian life is merely or exclusively intellectual. That is certainly not the case. Uh, The Christian life is not merely a matter of knowledge. But if you have wrong views of God, aberrant views of God, it is going to impact or affect your life. So right living begins by thinking right about what God is like. It doesn't stop there, but it certainly is a foundational starting point. And in light of that, it is interesting to note some of the ways in which God is often viewed in our society and even in the church among Christians. For example, some people see God as a gray-bearded old man who is out of touch with life. He exists, and he is somewhat wise because of his age. He's, you know, he's been around a long time, but he just doesn't have it all together anymore. He sort of, you know, is slipping. Like all of us, as we get elderly, we can lose sharpness of thinking or other uh, abilities. And some people view God like that. He's very old, and so he's got some wisdom, but he just isn't what he once was. Some people, on the other hand, see God as a kind grandfather whose job it is to give out gifts and goodies. He's sort of uh, a divine ATM. You just go to God and ask Him for whatever you want, and it's His job to supply you with whatever you want. Others, and this would be sort of a swing the pendulum the other way, others see God as an angry judge who sits waiting to strike out in judgment as soon as He has any reason or excuse to do so. In fact, some who view God this way think He actually wants his creatures to mess up so that he can have the pleasure of judging them. Of course, that's not an accurate view of God, but it's not an uncommon view of God. Some people see God as a cool dude who understands and excuses all of our shortcomings. You know, it just sort of trivializes them with sort of a wave of the hand. Oh, no big deal. An example of this is the person who refers to God as my main man upstairs or my good buddy in heaven or those types of phrases to refer to God. Some people see God as a divine genie who is obligated to rescue everyone from trouble when he is called upon. In other words, you you know, you don't have to take God that seriously in life, but he's always there, and if you get in trouble... And you call on him, it's guaranteed he has to help you. That's his job as God, just to help you out of trouble when you call on him. Those are just some of the distorted concepts of God that are commonly embraced in society and sadly even in the church. And I'm sure you could add more to the list. So in this study, we want to begin looking at what God is really like as his own word describes him. Remember, we are outlining this series around three key questions. Who is God? What is God? And what is God like? 
Those are the three questions we're seeking to answer, though recognizing we cannot do so exhaustively by any means. So question number one, who is God? We saw from Acts 17 that he is the creator of the world and everything in it. He is the creator of the universe. He is king and lord of his creation and this universe. He is sovereign. He is the life giver. He is the source of everything. He is the governor and controller of history. He is the revealer. He does what he does so he might reveal himself to be who he really is. That at least is a partial answer to the question, who is God? It is the way the Apostle Paul described him when he was seeking to answer that question on Mars Hill. Then in the next message, our last message in the series, we moved on to the second question, what is God? We move from who is God to what is God? What kind of being is he? He obviously isn't like us. That's our tendency to think that way. That's why God, through the psalmist, says, you thought that I was like you. You made the mistake of thinking I was like you. God is not like us. God is holy. And when the scripture refers to God as holy, it doesn't merely mean he's righteous. Certainly he's righteous. It means he's different. He is in a class all by himself. So, <clears throat> so to answer the question, what kind of being is he, we considered the very essence of God. What kind of being is he? Number one, God is spiritual. That means he is a spirit being. He has no physical body, yet he is alive. And he is a person. He's not a human being, but he is a spirit being. Number two, God is self-existent. That means he has life in himself. He is the first cause himself uncaused. He exists by necessity of his very nature as God. God is self-existent. Third, God is immense. That means not that God is big. That's the way we typically use the term. But it means that God transcends all spatial limitations. He is present beyond the limits of space. If we could go to the farthest limits of space, if we could somehow draw a line, a circle around the farthest limits of space, beyond that would be God because of his immensity. Fourthly, God is eternal. That means God is free from all succession of time. He has the whole of his existence in one indivisible present. He sees the past and future as visibly as the present. He is without beginning. He is without end. He created time. He's the author of time. As impossible as it is for us to grasp, there was no such thing as time until God created it. Which is why it is really a contradiction to say what all of us say, because we have no other way to say it, when we use the phrase, in eternity past. That's an oxymoron. There was no such thing, but we understand what we're trying to communicate with that phrase. God is without beginning or end. And then number five, God is immutable. That means God is unchanging and unchangeable. He is free from all increase or decrease. He can't get better at anything. He can't become worse at anything. 
This, is, this applies to his character, to his works. Change implies imperfection. And since God is perfect in every way, he cannot change. He does not change. He is free from all increase. He is free from all decrease. Because God is immutable. So those five components, spirituality, self-existence, immensity, eternality, and immutability, compose the essence of God. And we tried to grapple with those in some detail in our last study. Well, now we move on to the attributes of God. As we consider the attributes of God, we're seeking to answer the third question in this series, and that is, what is God like? Who is God? What is God? What is God like? Now, I want to divide this up into two categories and two messages, specifically the non-moral attributes of God and the moral attributes of God. The non-moral attributes of God are those that do not involve a standard of right and wrong. The moral attributes of God, which we will look at, Lord willing, in the next study, are those that do involve a standard of right and wrong. So the three non-moral attributes of God that we want to look at in this study as we just begin to try to grapple with the question, what is God like? The three non-moral attributes of God are His omnipresence, His omniscience, and His omnipotence. The three, often called the three omnis, of God. So let's consider them individually. By the way, we're going to be doing basically a little theology, a shortened theology, which means that we're going to have to turn to a lot of passages. Anytime you've, if you've done a theology or studied theology, you know that in systematic theology you pull together a number of statements about the subject or the topic to build your theology, and we're going to do something very similar in this study. We, by no means exhaustive, but we will be turning to a lot of passages, so just plan right up front to bounce back and forth as we pull in key passages to, to give uh, elucidation or insight into the point. So number one, the omnipresence of God. This means that God is present in every part of space with his whole being. Let's begin in Psalm 139, that very familiar psalm, <clears throat> very well-loved psalm. Psalm 139, verse 7. The psalmist says, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? And understand that the psalmist is not implying that he wants to get away from God. He's not trying to get away from God. That's not his desire. He is just affirming the fact that he doesn't have to be concerned that somehow he would get away from God. Or that he would go outside of God's presence. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell or Sheol or the grave, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning, it seems to be a Hebrew phrase describing sort of traveling at the speed of light or traveling extremely fast. If I could take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So here, the psalmist affirms the omnipresence of God. Jeremiah 23, 24 says, Do not I fill 
heaven and earth, says the Lord. God is everywhere. Now, that doesn't mean that God is present in the same sense everywhere, but he is present everywhere. For example, he doesn't dwell on earth in the same way he dwells in heaven, but he is present everywhere. This concept causes some problems in the minds of some people, maybe even objections, so let me just mention a couple of them. One objection to the omnipresence of God is this. If God is everywhere, this is how some people reason or think about it. If God is everywhere, then he is impure because he is defiled by the impurity of the things he is around. I mean, you know as well as I do, some awful things go, go on on planet Earth. Some awful things take place. So if God is there in that setting where awful things take place, does that defile him? That is what some people think. No, God's not there. He's not in the, you know, the bar where people are drunk or in the, you know, no, God's not in those places. Yes, God is. Because Scripture teaches that although God is everywhere, He never mixes with any impurity. Just as an illustration, think of the sun and its rays. The sun's rays may fall on a manure pile, but that pile never lays any of its defilement on the sun. So it is with God. He is everywhere. His presence is everywhere, but sin's filth doesn't defile him because he doesn't mix with it. A second objection by some to the omnipresence of God is the fact that the Bible makes statements, and it does, about God being in certain places at certain times. For example, the Bible speaks of God being near us. He is near the brokenhearted. God being with us, and then God not being with others. He is far from some people, the Bible says. How do we explain that? It's easy to understand the difference between the essence of God, and it's easy when you understand the difference between the essence of God and his relations. God is everywhere in his essence, but he specializes his presence in how he relates to people and places on the earth. That's why the Bible can make a statement like it does in Genesis 11, where it says, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower. That's the famous story of the Tower of Babel. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower. Surely you know that God didn't have to leave heaven to find out what was going on. Right? I mean, he knew everything that was going on, but it's just the, the, the way Scripture tells us that God gave immediate and special attention to what was going on in that situation. So God is everywhere, but he dwells in a special manner in certain places. Now, what are some of the practical applications of this doctrine? Because as we work our way through the attributes of God tonight and in, in the next study, I want to I want us to, to see the practical benefits of understanding the character of God. So what are some of the practical applications of this doctrine? On the positive side, the omnipresence of God ought to be a great comfort to us. God is with us no matter where we are, no matter what we go through. That's what the psalmist was saying here in Psalm 139. God is with me. Psalm 23, 4 says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
Philippians 4, 5 and 6 says, The Lord is at hand, so be anxious for nothing. Romans 8 says that once we are in Christ, nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ. That is a great source of encouragement and comfort. A second practical application of this doctrine is that it ought to restrain us from sin and evil. Beloved, we can't go somewhere and hide from God to get away with sin. But that's how we think. It's foolish thinking. God is everywhere. If you go to a dark place somewhere to do something so no one will see you, just remember that God is there. You go into the secrecy of some room where no one can see and you lock the door, guess who's there? God is there. You can't hide from Him. Everything you say, you say in the presence of God. Some people speak to other people. Even Christians do this. They speak to people in a way that they would never talk if the Lord were standing right there, when the fact is, He is right there. But they don't think about that. They use language. They, they say things they would never say if, they, if Jesus were standing beside them. And He is. Because the Lord is everywhere. Everything you say, you say in the presence of God. Everything you do, you do in the presence of God. In Job 31.4, Job said, Does not he see my ways? Yes, he does. So that ought to be a motivating factor for holiness in our lives. But what does the doctrine of the omnipresence of God mean to the unbeliever? It means there is no place to hide from God's judgment. Turn over to the right to Amos chapter 9. Amos chapter 9. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Not an easy little book to find. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos chapter 9. When God decided to judge the northern kingdom of Israel... He wanted them to realize that there was no escaping his presence. So look at what God says in Amos chapter 9, verse 2. I'll tell you, when you read these words, you hear God talking like this, it, it, it should make the hair stand up on the back of your neck. I mean, this is really scary. God says this in Amos 9, verse 2, Though they dig into hell, or Sheol, from there my hand shall take them. Though they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. And though they hide themselves on top of Carmel, from there, that's a mountain, of course, in Israel, a mountain range, actually. They think they can lose, the, lose me in the mountains? From there I will search and take them. Though they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, from there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. Though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword and it will slay them. I will set my eyes on them for harm and not for good. What is God saying there? He's saying this. When he decides to judge, no one can escape his presence. doesn't matter where people may try to hide. No one can escape his presence. Look at Job 34, back to the left, prior to Isaiah, Jeremiah, prior to the Psalms, Job verse 34, or chapter 34. 
<clears throat> verse 21, or verses 21 and 22. Job 34, verse 21, For his eyes are on the ways of man, and he sees all his steps. There is no darkness nor shadow of death where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. Another fearful statement on the omnipresence of God. There is no place where the workers of iniquity may hide. To say it another way, there is no way an ungodly man will be successful in running away from God. He's everywhere. And in fact, when you read the description in the book of Revelation of the great white throne judgment, it says, it talks about people fleeing, but there's no place for them to flee. No getting away. God is everywhere. The second non-moral attribute of God in our list is the omniscience of God. Let me give you a technical definition. God perfectly knows himself and all things actual or possible past, present, or future from all eternity. Let me say that again. God perfectly knows himself and all things, actual or possible, past, present, or future from all eternity. We're in the book of Job. Turn over to the right just a few chapters to Job 37, verse 16. It says, Do you know how the clouds are balanced? Those wondrous works of him. Here's a great description of God. Who is perfect in knowledge. That says it well. God is perfect in knowledge. There is nothing God doesn't know. His knowledge is complete. He knows everything and everyone and all things about everything and everyone. And I would add this, God's knowledge is intuitive. In other words, it's not obtained by inference or reasoning about facts. God doesn't have to sort of put two and two together to make sure that he, he knows or understands. He doesn't learn through history like we learn lessons in life. God's knowledge is innate. It's not gained through experience. It's not gained through learning. God can't learn anything. Because he already knows all things. That's how thorough his knowledge is. And I would add another description. It is simultaneous. God knows all things in their totality, not successively. Not the way we have to learn. We have to build, you know, our knowledge. Those of you who have taken a foreign language in, in Bible school or seminary, Greek or Hebrew, you know you've got to start with the elemental things and build your knowledge of the language over time. That's just how it, that's not how God knows things. He doesn't build his knowledge. He knows all things in their totality, not success, successively. Go over to Isaiah chapter 40. As you probably know, some of the greatest statements about the character of God are found in Isaiah. It's one of the loftiest books in all of Scripture. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28 says this, Have you not known... Have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, 
the creator of the ends of the earth, nor neither faints nor is weary. And here's the statement. His understanding is unsearchable. In other words, there is no way to comprehend all that God knows and all that God understands. That's impossible for us. We're finite. He's infinite. In fact, Psalm 147 verse 5 says, His understanding is infinite. The greatest expression of God's knowledge is the fact that God knows Himself perfectly. We don't know ourselves perfectly. We may think we know ourselves, but sometimes we surprise ourselves, don't we? I didn't know I, you know, would do that. That one catches me by. We don't know ourselves perfectly. And we're finite creatures. God knows himself perfectly, and he is infinite. In addition to that, look, go back to the Psalms again. Psalm 147 for more details of God's knowledge. And there are so many verses, it's hard to know which ones just to pick out or zero in on. Psalm 147, verse 4, says this. Maybe this is one we can appreciate with our present knowledge of astronomy. He counts the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. That is mind-boggling. If you know anything about astronomy and the number of stars, God knows the total number of stars. He even has a name for each one of the stars. Think about that. I mean, some of you can't even keep the names of your kids straight, right? Or your grandkids. You just go down the list when you're trying to call them. God knows every star, has a name for every star. And even when a star will burn out, he knows how many. He knows it all. Back up to Psalm 139, where we were earlier. Verse 2 says this, You know my sitting down and my rising up. And the psalmist isn't just saying, Well, you know that about me, but you don't know it about anyone else. Clearly what it is saying is that God knows every time every human being on planet Earth sits down and every time every human being on planet Earth stands up. Can you imagine that kind of knowledge? He knows every thought every human being ever thinks. Matthew 10.30 says he even knows the number of hairs on everybody's head. God knows everything about everything. God not only knows all things that actually exist, he knows all things that are future. This expands our understanding or appreciation of his knowledge. He not only knows all things, everything about everything, but he knows about the future. Go back to Isaiah again for another example. Isaiah chapter 42 Verse 9, look at this statement about God's knowledge. Psalm 42, I mean, Isaiah 42, verse 9. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare before they spring forth, I tell of them. So God is saying here, this is how thorough my knowledge is. I can, I'm going to tell you what's happened, even, what's going to happen even before it happens. In chapter 46, we have a similar statement. Isaiah 46, verse 10. This is, God's, this is a description of God declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. God is able to predict the future and he can predict it with absolute perfect accuracy because he controls the future. So he says this is what's going to happen and it is going to happen and he knows it's going to happen because he makes sure it happens. 
So God knows the past and the present perfectly, but he also knows the future just as well. But there's even more than that when it comes to God's knowledge. This one is fascinating to me. God not only knows all things that actually exist and all things that are future, he even knows all things that are possible. To illustrate this, turn over to Matthew 11, into the New Testament. Matthew chapter 11. And this is just fascinating to contemplate. Matthew 11, verse 20, Then Jesus began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, you remember Sodom and Gomorrah, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in that day and ju- a day of judgment than for you. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? Without it ever happening, and it didn't happen, But without it ever happening, Jesus knew what would have happened because as God, he not only knows all things actual and all things future, he knows all things possible or all things contingent. That's the knowledge of God. Now, what are some practical applications of God's omniscience? Well, on the positive side, again, this should be a great source of comfort and strength. When the going gets tough, when no one else really understands what you're going through, and there are experiences in life like that. There are experiences in life where you just say, you know, unless you had my exact circumstances, you can't understand. You can't. It's not a knock. It's just a fact. You, it, when the going gets tough and no one on a human level can understand, God knows what we're going through. His knowledge is perfect. It's a comfort to know that even in this huge universe, I'm not lost in the crowd because God knows me personally. In fact, it's humbling to realize that even though God knows me perfectly, He still loves me. And even though I fail Him, it's a comfort to know that He knows my heart and He knows I love Him even when my actions are not showing it like I should. Frankly, if it weren't for the omniscience of God, there would be days when he would not know I love him like I do. Even when I blow it, I have confidence that God knows my heart. He knows my contrition. He knows I love him. That is a great assurance to me. Peter appealed to this in Jesus. You remember when Jesus was questioning him? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Three times. And finally, Peter just said to him, Lord... What did he say? You know all things. You know I love you. Basically what Peter was saying is, I know my denials, Lord, seem to show that I don't love you, but you know I love you. My denials weren't consistent with my claim, but you know I love you. That's the omniscience of God. On the negative side, the omniscience of God should restrain us from actions or thoughts that are not pleasing to him. 
God not only knows what we do, he knows what we think. He knows our thoughts. We can't keep any secrets from him. God's omniscience ought to be a deterrent to sin. Related to that, what does God's omniscience mean to those who don't know Christ? Well, first of all, it should show the foolishness of hypocrisy. And what I mean is the, the foolishness of pretending. And there are some people like that. They, they want to just pretend that they're, you know, a, a Christian. They'll go to church or whatever. And they may confuse other people, but you aren't confusing God. Nobody can fool God. God knows every human heart. Revelation 2.23 describes God this way. He who searches the minds and hearts. He knows who's real, who's not real. Nobody can pretend to be a Christian and fake God out. You may fake out friends or family members or relatives. You aren't going to fake God out. Second, God's omniscience will be the basis of his judgment of all unbelievers. In Jeremiah 16, 7, God says, For my eyes are upon all their ways. They are not hidden from my face. Neither is their iniquity hidden from my eyes. When God judges, his judgment will be exact because he is omniscient. He knows everything about every unbeliever, and no unbeliever will be able to accuse God of not having all his facts straight, not having all the right information, because God knows everything perfectly. And it will be the basis of his judgment of unbelievers. The third non-moral attribute of God in our list is the omnipotence of God. Omnipresence, omniscience, and now the omnipotence of God. Briefly stated, God possesses all power. Another way to say it is he can do everything that is in harmony with his perfections. And the reason I state it that way is because there are things, as you know, the Scripture says God cannot do. God cannot lie. God cannot sin. God, there are things God can't do, but that's no limitation on his power. He can do everything that is in harmony with his perfections. The Bible refers to God as almighty 56 times. 56 times. That word, by the way, not surprisingly, is never used in reference to anyone else. Only God. Only God is almighty. From Genesis to Revelation, God is called Almighty. In fact, let me just show you one example in each. Genesis and Revelation is sort of the bookends for this. Go back all the way to Genesis 17. Genesis chapter 17. Verse 1. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am Almighty God. Some of you will know this Hebrew word because of the famous song years ago, El Shaddai. I am El Shaddai. I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. The interesting thing about this is the fact that this is the way God refers to himself. This is not someone saying of God he is almighty. Not that that would mean, make it any less true. But this is God himself describing himself as the almighty one. The almighty God. That's in Genesis. It's stated 
54 other times along the way, and then we have another one over in Revelation chapter 19. So go from the first book to the last book, Revelation chapter 19. Verse 6. This is a prelude to the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth to establish the promised kingdom. And we read as heaven anticipates this, it's about to unfold in verse 6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering saying, Alleluia! By the way, just a little side note, this is the only, that's such a common word, in Christian circles, we all know it. It actually comes from the Hebrew word hallelujah. comes over into English as alleluia. Such a common word, but you might find it interesting. No, this is the only place in the New Testament where the word is used. Right here, Revelation 19. It is reserved for this special occasion. Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. In some translations, the Lord God Almighty reigns. God is all-powerful. Genesis 18, 14 says, Is anything too hard for the Lord? In Jeremiah 32, 27, God says, Behold, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? In Matthew 19, 26, Jesus said, But with God all things are possible. And that is because God is all-powerful. In fact, God has more power than he actually exercises. Technically, God does not use his power. Now, I don't know how else we would describe it, so all of us phrase it that way. God used his power to do this, and God, but God doesn't use his power because he, it doesn't deplete in any way. God doesn't get tired. It's not like after God does something, he goes from 100% to 90%. He's always all-powerful, always omnipotent. He doesn't slide back and forth between omnipotence. Oh, he did a few things. He's got to get back up to omnipotence. He doesn't use his power. He doesn't get tired. When the Bible says God rested on the seventh day, talking about the creation account, it means he ceased from his creating and making work, and he began his sustaining work. But neither one is difficult for him. He can do anything effortlessly. He can do one thing just as easily as he can do another thing. For example, God can create an entire mountain range just as easily as he can create a little bumblebee. It doesn't really matter. God can do either one easily. And by the way, creation, according to Scripture, is one of of the greatest expressions of of God's power. That's why it is so heinous to undermine creation by introducing evolution, because according to Scripture, creation is one of the greatest expressions of God's power. God created out of nothing, ex nihilo, created what he used to make, and the Bible tells us that a big part of this process was simply by his word, just by stating it. That's power. But God also displays his power not only in creation, but in redemption. Think about it this way. When God created the universe, there was no resistance. 
But for God to accomplish redemption, he has to overcome death, sin, hell, spiritual deadness, and the devil himself. And God does it. I mean, we're, we're all evidence of that. If you are a Christian, think about it this way. If you are a Christian, you are a display of God's power. Because according to Ephesians 2, we were dead in trespasses and sins. We had to be raised from the dead. That's power. According to Romans, we were in, there was animosity. We were fighting God. And God won. That's power. So God's power is seen in creation. It's seen in redemption. And one day, God will display his power in resurrection. Think about this, beloved. God is going to raise up every single person who has ever lived. And that's in the billions and billions. Some will be raised to the resurrection of life. Some will be raised to the resurrection of condemnation. But God will pull it off because God is all-powerful. He will raise every human being who has ever lived from the dead. And that's a great source of comfort because Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. God promises his strength to us so we can handle everything that comes our way. We can be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, to borrow Paul's words from Ephesians 6. Psalm 121 says, I will lift up my eyes into the hills. From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The omnipotence of God gives great confidence that God is powerful enough to hold on to me and to fulfill his promises to me here on earth and in eternity. But for the unbeliever, the omnipotence of God means certain condemnation because you cannot win if you resist God. Nobody beats God. Nobody. Nobody. If you are a Christian, if you are a child of God, then this kind of contemplation should cause your heart to overflow with thankfulness for who God is. If you are not a Christian, then this kind of contemplation should cause your heart to fear God and submit your life to him today. Whatever the case, as we close, I urge you to worship God for who he is. Let's do that together in closing. Father, words fail us. I mean, when we try somehow just to begin to contemplate or get a handle on what Scripture has to say about what you are like, it's, it's thrilling for us. It is exciting for us, but it's also frustrating because our minds just, they reach a point to where we, we, we're blocked. It's sort of like this, this mental block where we can't go further. We can't wrap our minds around the concept any farther because we are trying to contemplate infinity. We're trying to contemplate you, the infinite God, who is omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. And those things are not us. We are not those things. And so we're immediately trying to stretch and, and, and grapple with something that is not normal to us, but that is so good for us, so healthy for us. 
We want to worship you for who you are. And we recognize that even in our attempts, our, our eager attempts to try to see you as Scripture presents you, we fall short. So continue to open the eyes of our understanding. And may our hearts overflow with thankfulness for who you are when we contemplate who you are and see who you are as you have revealed yourself in Scripture. And in closing, we want to pray for anyone who is hearing these words and has not embraced you, has not fallen before you, who is not a child, who is not one of your children. May they have a healthy, proper fear of you that should be present in their lives. And may they surrender before you today. It sounds so insufficient to say we thank you for who you are, but we don't know how else to say it. We worship you for who you are as we pray in your Son's matchless name. Amen.